Some of you are uh, heavy sleepers. Um, you have a little difficulty waking up. Some of you this morning probably were not the quickest to be aroused when your loved one came to you and stirred you, your parents, or whoever it might be. Uh, we sometimes have to be woken up maybe multiple times, uh, hit the snooze button, have our, our, our parents walk in our rooms maybe a couple times because we just don't always hear the first call or the first sound and respond to the way we ought to be. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is a resounding call for us, and we've had the opportunity now for a couple of weeks to sort of park ourselves in this passage and to really meditate on a call in our own lives to be awakened, to be stirred from a, a kind of a spiritual slumber, a kind of a, a dullness and insensitivity that comes over our hearts and minds in light of the world that's around us. And it's a call for us to reorient our lives, to refocus our attention on the return of our Savior, the, the, what we are calling the appearing of Christ. And we have to this point been looking at this passage and kind of working our way through it and realizing that Paul is presenting all that he's presenting to us here in terms of those who are asleep and those who are awake or those who are of the night and those who are of the day, really between unbelievers and between believers and the way that they think about, the way they're oriented towards, the way they prepare for the return of Christ. And his main concern as he talks about all of this, is not necessarily the details of the return of Christ. He doesn't walk us through all that's going to happen between the rapture and the tribulation and the judgment and the establishment of God's kingdom and the thousand-year reign and the rebellion at the end and all those other things, casting Satan into the lake of fire. He doesn't really go through all the details that you might find, say, in a, a book like Revelation. But his main concern is that in light of everything that's coming, that you not be insensitive to these spiritual realities, that you not be forgetful of what is to come, that you somehow wouldn't fall into the pattern of the world around you which does live in blindness and does live in darkness and does live insensitive to all these things, uh, you hate to say unaware of that because some of them have been actually very well exposed to these realities, but it just makes no impact in their life. It doesn't make any significant change in their life because ultimately they don't believe it. They don't accept it. And consequently, it has an impact on their lifestyles, on their values, on their goals, on what motivates them when they rise up every morning and when they go to bed every night. It, it, I shouldn't say it impact, but it impacts, but it doesn't have any impact. The whole reality of the return of Christ has no significant impact on their life at all. And what Paul's really telling us to do is not to allow that to happen. In light of the second coming of Christ, you and I need to be changed. Our understanding of eschatology ought to have a, a concrete and direct influence on the way that we live. It ought to have some impact to the way that we work and the way that we entertain ourselves and the way that we interact with other people around us. And so, while so many today are 
jettisoning the whole idea of eschatology or diminishing it or downplaying it or as I said last week you're sort of almost embarrassed to even bring up the subject they think of it as something that is only a distraction or somehow a divisive thing the New Testament would want us to fix our hope on these events and let it have its work within us and to that extent what Paul's doing here is he's outlining for us the characteristic of the kind of people who live in the light of Christ's return. They live in the light of Christ's return. They, they are constantly thinking about it. They're constantly reminding themselves of it. They're singing about it. They're meditating on it. They're reading about it. They're, they're, they're doing all of these things because this is the orientation of their life. And so we've already begun to look at some of this. The first couple of things that Paul brings up here is, first of all, that those who live in the light of Christ appearing are those who are aware of its suddenness. They're aware of the suddenness of His appearing. That is to say that they know Christ could come at any moment. There are no other prophetic events that are laid out in Scripture that must happen first. It's not like we're going to have some season of time that's full of prophetic uh, uh, fulfillment, and then at the end of that, Christ is going to come. They know that at the, at the twinkling of an eye, Christ could return. Or as Paul says here, like a thief in the night. And, and so they're aware that, that there will be no time when Christ returns to suddenly get your house in order. To suddenly prove the quality of your Christian life. To suddenly dress up the things for which you would be ashamed if you stand before the Lord. Secondly, those who live in the light of His appearing are those who are aware of the self-deception around them. They're aware of the self-deception of the world. They understand that in verse 3, while people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them like a labor pain upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Unbelievers, they understand, have no sense that anything will come along which will threaten their their sense of security, that, that will somehow threaten them with any real sense of judgment. These unbelievers, Paul uses the, the language here in the original uses a, a, a present continuous. They will, they're repeatedly, repeatedly reassuring themselves that they are safe and they are secure. And consequently, they are preoccupied with all kinds of shameful activities. They're preoccupied with all kinds of things which have anything to do with, uh, with, with which I have to do with anything, I should say, other than preparing them for the return of Christ. And so we are surrounded by this. We're surrounded by this self-deception, which Paul goes on to describe as a kind of darkness. They're in spiritual darkness, he says in verses 4 and 5. A darkness that pervades the world and, and leaves them unprepared for the coming of this moment like a thief in the night. They're dark, as I said, not because they have never heard of the details of this. They're not in the dark, we might say cognitively, but they're darkened spiritually. They do not accept these realities. They do not accept that Christ could come today and that when He comes, there will be severe judgment. They don't accept that. And so they live their lives as if it's not a reality, as if it's not true. 
But you, Paul says, you are not blinded in this way so that the thief should, excuse me, the the day should overtake you like a thief. Your knowledge is different. Your nature is different. And so your behavior ought to be different. Which is really the third characteristic of those who live in the light of his appearing. And our focus this morning, uh, the third and the fourth characteristic, but the third one right there in verses 6 and 7 and 8, is that those who live in the light of his appearing are those who are awake to the spiritual dangers of this darkness. Because of the work that's happened in your heart, because of the regenerative work of the Spirit, and because of what you know about what is going to happen in the days to come, because of all of that, Paul says in verses 6, he says in verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, you can see what Paul's doing here. He's kind of taking the reality of the spiritual darkness and the reality that you and I are spiritually in the light, and he's drawing an analogy. And what he's saying is that because we understand the very nature of the world around us, it ought to constantly be driving you to make a contrast between their behavior, their values, their goals, and yours. Since the world around us is spiritually in darkness, it should not surprise you that they are sleeping or drunken, which are sort of metaphorical language for talking about their spiritual life and their spiritual values. Paul says that's just natural for someone to do who's in darkness. It's natural for people to do that at night. That's when that stuff normally takes place. But it shouldn't be true of you and it shouldn't be true of me. You and I are sons and daughters of the light, children of the day. And so therefore, we should not be sleeping. And we shouldn't be drunk. Of course, the whole language of of light and darkness, day and night, as I said, these are just metaphorical for spiritual realities. And Paul is really describing for us spiritual attitudes We might say attitudes towards spiritual things. These are the attitudes towards spiritual things around you. And he summarizes the world's and its attitude towards spiritual things as sleeping and as drunken. Which is metaphorical for really saying that they are spiritually indifferent and they're spiritually confused or disoriented. That's what drunkenness really is. And all of this is characteristic of people who are of the night. Jesus says it this way in Luke 11, Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. When it's bad, your body is filled with darkness. He's just making a simple analogy here. In terms of a physical organ, your eye. And what he's saying is, when you have a healthy, a good eye, light enters in and it processes through the nerves that are attached to your eye. 
And there are all sorts of, of, of impacts from those nerve impulses which move from your optical nerve into your brain and then out through your nervous system to your hands and your feet and everything else so that it's like your whole body is being filled with light even though it's really only your eye that's filled with light. But your whole body has the benefit of seeing clearly the way things are around you. But, he says, if your eye is bad, if your eye is unhealthy, if your eye cannot process the light, then what fills your body? Darkness. You can't process any of that stuff. You can't really understand fully the realities that are around you. You will grope around and you will make all kinds of erroneous judgments about what is around you if that is what is true about your your eye. And so he draws an analogy from this as well. He says, therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful lest what you think is light and what you think is enlightenment and what you think is knowledge and what you think is is education and intellectualism and all that other stuff, be careful, especially you who are prone to deep thinking and philosophical thinking and, and, uh, and education, be careful, lest all of that stuff that's filling your head day in and day out that you think puts you on the cutting edge of whatever the the current thought is, be careful lest all that you think is actually light is still darkness. Now, this is the world. This is the mind of the common man. He is spiritually darkened and drunken and asleep. He's anything but spiritually aware and anything but spiritually alert. And so Paul says, you are not that way. You are children of the light. And since we are not of the darkness, you and I ought not to be making the same kinds of mistakes and judgments as those who are asleep. We shouldn't adopt the ways of darkness. We shouldn't be conformed to the world of darkness. We shouldn't adopt its attitudes or its actions or its pursuits or its values. Now, that's not to say there won't be intense pressure on you to do that. You are going to feel pressure just from the sheer extent of exposure that you have to the world. From just from the, from the magnitude of of exposure from the majority of people that you encounter you will hear certain attitudes you will experience certain ways of thinking the majority of things that you see and hear from your colleagues or from your digital screens or from whatever the majority of what you experience and encounter will be governed by attitudes that are spiritually confused, spiritually asleep, spiritually intoxicated, or, or whatever you want to pick up from Paul's metaphor here, it will be blinded. And you can't sit back and just begin to say, well, that's just the way it is. You know, you, you can't sit back and say, well, this is just normal. And you, this is just, this is just what is acceptable. 
This is the, as somebody might say, well, this is just the real world. And you have all that spiritual stuff that takes place on a Sunday or maybe, you know, in a Bible study. But that, the real world, this is the way the real world operates. And the real world thinks this way. And the real world has this attitude. And the real world understands that if you want to get ahead or if you want to be recognized or if you want to even be accepted, then you have to do things a certain way. You have to adopt certain beliefs and certain standards. You have to do that. What Paul's saying is you cannot. You cannot. You must understand that all of this is flowing from a source of drunkenness and slumber. It's all coming from a source of drunkenness and slumber. And who in the world would put their hands, or their life, I should say, in the hands of someone who is drunk or someone who's asleep. Paul's saying, look, the truth is, if you don't understand all of this, if you are living your life and defining yourself and your values and all that other stuff, by this kind of darkness you might actually be a child of the darkness. You might actually be drunken spiritually yourself. You might actually be confused. You might actually be slumbering. Because we are of the day. And so that kind of lifestyle isn't natural for people of the day. It isn't natural. People do it. People sleep during the day. Some people drink all day. But it isn't natural to do that. And so if you're doing that, Paul has this warning for you. Examine yourself. This is his logical conclusion. Since we're children of the day, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now then the question becomes, how can I be sober? How can I stay awake? How can I be spiritually alert all the time? Well, he says it for us very clearly in the, in the passage here. You'll notice in verse 6, he mentions he, this, this call to be sober. Uh, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then he kind of gives this parenthetical statement in verse 7, which you could, you, know, you could almost read the passage without verse 7 and understand the flow of thought. Because he goes straight from verse 6, let us keep awake and be sober, to verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So the whole thought between, the whole link between verses 6 and 8 is sobriety. This is the call. Be sober. And how do you do that? Well, verse 8 tells us, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, don't get messed up with all the mixed metaphors here. Paul moves from this idea of a thief in the night, and then he starts talking about people of the day and people of the, of the night, and he talks about sleeping and waking and drunkenness, and now he's inter- inserting all of this language about, about warfare, about, about armor, or we might say, battles. Don't get 
caught in all of the overlapping metaphors here, but just listen to what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, for you and I to remain spiritually awake and to remain spiritually sober is for us to dress ourselves with a kind of spiritual armor, which he describes here as a breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Paul uses this idea of spiritual armor, as you may well know, in different places throughout the New Testament, and often against the backdrop of this idea of darkness. For example, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So you put on this spiritual armor because you are battling against forces of darkness, he says. Or Romans 13, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So, so you understand that Paul often frames this idea of spiritual armor against the backdrop of spiritual darkness. And what he's telling us is this is the key to your spiritual sobriety. This is the steps you must take to remain spiritually alert. It is to dress yourself with spiritual armor, which Paul doesn't outline for us in Romans 13, he just calls it the armor of light because you're children of light. The armor that belongs to those of the daytime. And he contrasted with these works of darkness. He says in verse 13 of Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. In other words, whether it's the Sort of the, 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 the obvious morally offensive behaviors like orgies and drunkenness or whether it is the more socially tolerated behaviors like quarreling and jealousy. You and I need to recognize that those things do not arise from the light. They arise from spiritual darkness. And you can't be unaware of those things. You have to recognize those sinful patterns of thought in your mind and you must deal with them and, and, and confront them before they manifest themselves in certain types of behavior. Don't allow yourself, in other words, to, to fall into the pattern of the world, whether it is sensuality or impurity or bickering or quarreling or strife or anger or whatever. Instead, dress yourself in the armor of light and stand against those things. Or another way to say this is you can't see all of that that's out there in the world and just say, hey, this is just normal. It's just normal. That's just the way life is, you know, you just have to accept it. No, what Paul says, those are normal for people who are of the night. But it's not normal for people who are of the day. Well, in a similar way, right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is using this language of spiritual armor. And he's telling us, since we belong to the day, we have to be sober and put on 
a breastplate of faith and love and a helmet for the hope of salvation. Now, if you were to look at Ephesians 6, Paul gives us multiple pieces of armor. He talks about a breastplate, a belt of truth, a shield of faith, shoes of peace, a sword of the Spirit. But don't get caught up in the image of each piece of armor because you have to understand it's just a metaphor for talking about spiritual truths. You're not literally dressing yourself in armor. You're dressing yourself in certain truths. That's the key point. This is just a vehicle to tell us how we protect ourselves against the darkness, against the the slumber that could seep into our life. And so whether he's using five or six pieces of armor in Ephesians or two pieces here, the whole idea is that you have to dress yourself with certain truths. In fact, Paul's probably using breastplate and helmet here because that's what is used in Ephesians. As Isaiah 59 talks about God dressing himself in a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. So Paul's probably just sort of picking up these two pieces of armor because that's what he read about God in his own battle against the darkness. And he's just using that metaphorically to tell us that we have to dress ourselves, but we have to dress ourselves in three particular truths. And here they are. First of all, a breastplate of faith, which is obviously faith towards God. It's the confidence and the assurance that God is good, that God will keep his promises, that God will return as he said he would. And Paul's already kind of talked about this back over in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul had commended them because they had heard of their work of faith, meaning work that produced, excuse me, faith that produced certain works in their life. And then in chapter 3, he talks about, in spite of hearing about all that, at the end of chapter 3, he says, nevertheless, I wanted to send Timothy to you because I was concerned knowing the affliction that you faced and knowing the hardship that you've fallen into since the time that I left, I was concerned to hear about your faith and to hear how you're doing in your faith. And so really what Paul focuses on throughout the book of Thessalonians when he speaks particularly of their faith is faith framed in the context of affliction. Not just their initial trust of Christ, not their faith in that sense, but he's talking about faith as it works itself out in all of the daily circumstances and challenges of life. When you are faced with some obstacle and some hardship and, and some difficulty and you can't you know, pay the next bill or you're, you've lost your job or you're losing a, a loved one to, to uh, some illness or whatever it might be, and you are facing that trial Paul understands that is a trial of faith, of belief, of trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so in the midst of all those afflictions, he wants us to hold on to this reality that God is good. Paul had tried, he says over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he had tried to prepare them Ahead of time, he reminded them, when, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you would suffer affliction. He tried to tell them that they would be in spiritual conflict, that there would be internal struggles and external struggles. He tried to warn them that there would be a clash of values 
between what they have been taught and what they'll hear from the world. He tried to remind them that their faith would be tested. He kept emphasizing to them that the path wouldn't be easy, that they were going to have to battle through difficult times and and the, the, the waves and the currents would pound against them like the hull of a ship. He tried to remind them to trust in God and His promises, not in the world and its promises. And so now he's just coming near at the end. And he says, look, you've you got to understand that in the midst of this light and dark contrast, in the midst of all that's around you, you've got to dress yourself every day with that faith. You've got to dress yourself in that kind of a breastplate. If you're going to survive in this world that tells you your God doesn't exist and tells you your belief system is silly and tells you that you're hoping in delusional things, if you're going to survive in that kind of environment, then you have got to continually remind yourself of the trustworthiness of God. Secondly, he wants you to dress yourself in an armor of love. A breastplate of faith, but also a breastplate of love, which kind of takes you from that vertical relationship with God to the horizontal relationship with others. And it recognizes that one of the chief areas of spiritual darkness that you're going to encounter is the the reaction of other people in relationships. Paul had emphasized it in Romans when he was talking about casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. His focus was on not getting caught up in quarreling and jealousy and and all of those things that attack relationships all the time. But to dress yourself in the what he says in Ephesians is the gospel of peace. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Or James says in James 3.14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, do not boast and be false to the truth. This isn't wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that's from above is first of all pure, then full of peace gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what Paul is saying is essentially the same thing. You need to understand that there's going to be all around you a kind of thinking, a kind of value system that doesn't put value on peace and it doesn't put value on reconciliation. It puts value on disorder and value on strife and value on jealousy and value on selfish ambition. And you just need to understand that. All this quarreling that takes place all the time all over the world. And you live in it. You live in a competitive environment. If you're a businessman, if you are a nurse, if you are whatever, you are in this environment where there's constantly bickering and people are quarreling with one another another over the next nickel and the next dollar rather than just allowing themselves from time to time to be taken advantage of for the sake of peace. Rather than just being a peacemaker, 
Rather than just sort of de-escalating everything, they just engage in it because this is the way of the world. But James says, ultimately, you have to understand, this is unspiritual, it's earthly, and it's demonic. All the worse when it comes into the church. When it enters into the church and people bring that kind of attitude towards other believers. And you have within the church this quarreling and fighting and selfish ambition. It's just evidence that you haven't dressed yourself against the spiritual warfare that's coming against you. You haven't properly clothed yourself with the right doctrines. You haven't put on the breastplate of love. You have become spiritually intoxicated, disoriented, confused. And Paul says we can't let that happen. That's a spiritual, that's a spiritual battle that we must fight against. And then thirdly, he says, you have to dress yourself with the hope of salvation as a helmet. And all that sort of brings us back to that central point of Christ's return. The hope of salvation focuses on the the coming day and the confident expectation that we have. Hope, you know, here is that New Testament sense of confidence, not the wistful sort of uh, uh, thinking and uh, speculation of what might happen, but the confidence of what will happen. And we dress ourselves with the certainty of the Lord's return so that we live our lives that way. The confidence of the day of our salvation. When Paul says the hope of salvation, he's, he's using it in that final sense, that final salvation. Not in the sense of our justification when we are, when we are declared righteous. When you come to Christ, you come as an unrighteous guilty and condemned sinner. It's the way you approach Him. You approach Him and you have nothing by which to make a claim on salvation. And you put your trust in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. At that moment, because of the work of Christ on the cross, He declares you to be righteous. And by doing that, all of your sins are wiped away and you are made worthy of heaven. Now, that is salvation in its present sense. But there's a future sense of salvation. There's a future sense where not only do you experience that justification and and a renewal that takes place in your heart, but there's a coming day of salvation when even your fallen and weakened body, which still struggles with sin and disappoints you and disappoints people around you, there's coming a day when you will be redeemed and saved even in the physical sense. You will be removed from the, the, the ongoing battle in your flesh with sin. You'll be given a glorified and perfected body. And you will be sealed forever in that state of perfection. That's the salvation that really our heart yearns for. Romans chapter 8 says... It says that we're crying out for it. We're yearning for it as children of God for the redemption of our bodies. And this is what Paul has in mind here. You dress yourself with that. You clothe yourselves. You wake up every morning and you, you contemplate that while you struggled with sin yesterday, today might be the day that the battle ends. Today might be the day 
when finally you enter into that blissful experience of being in a, a body that doesn't sin anymore, and you dress yourself with that, and what John says in 1 John chapter 3 is when you fix your hope on him like this, you purify yourself just as he is pure. It has an effect morally in your life. And so we, we don this helmet, this hope of salvation that is to come. Which really brings us to our final characteristic of those who live in the light of his appearing. And that is in verse 9 through 11. They are assured, they are assured of a salvation destined before the day of wrath. This is, this is them. They, are, they live in this kind of confidence. He says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So this is the hope of salvation that you're fixing your hope on. This is the hope that that we have been appointed, we have been destined not for wrath. Which in the context is pretty clear. You go back to the first couple of verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, it's clear what he's talking about. He's talking about a wrath, a destruction, which is coming upon all of humanity, and they will not escape, he says in verse 3. So he's talking about a wrath that's going to be poured out on all the world, but you and I will not be a part of that wrath. You and I not, will not be subject to that, that destruction and, and, and desolation that's coming on all the world. You and I have not been appointed to suffer through that, he says. Instead, we have been appointed or destined to possess salvation, to obtain or receive salvation. That's what God has, in his sovereign and redeeming love, set us apart for. That he has, we might say it this way, he has elected us to that purpose. And so within this context... This is what we comfort ourselves with. That even if you falter in your spiritual alertness, even if you sometimes get drawn into a little bit of spiritual stupor because you have given too much attention over to the world, even if you are not fully where you need to be in your Focus on the return of Christ. You can comfort yourself that God still hasn't destined you for wrath. He's destined you to obtain your full salvation. Why? Because of the death of Christ. Because he died for us, he says in verse 10. Because of what he did on the cross, whether you are awake or asleep. You'll live with him. Because of his work, and it is his work, even though you are called to be alert, even though you are called to be vigilant, even though you're called to dress yourself in all of these spiritual truths, even though you have that mandate and and that responsibility, even though that pressure is on you to watch yourself and guard yourself, you're never to be confused that somehow you are securing your own salvation for yourself. It is totally the work of God. 
And you're going to, whether you are in a spiritual, uh, a state of, of absolute alertness, or whether you are in a, a state of lethargy, you are appointed for salvation. And it's his work through and through that'll bring that about. That's, if you go down to the bottom of chapter 5, we'll just look at verse 23. Now may God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's Paul's message. And he wants you to own that. He wants you to comfort each other with that. He wants to remind us of whether we are awake or asleep, that we will live together with him. And so praise be to God that he accomplishes his salvation even through our weakness. Now again, none of this is to eliminate the call to spiritual alertness. None of this is to eliminate the call to examine yourself. None of this does away with the foolishness of the drunkenness of the world. But Paul's simply reminding us and encouraging us that even as we hear the call to spiritual battle, even as you find yourself in the very heat of conflict, you may lose a skirmish here and there, but you will not lose the war. You will have ultimate victory because God has appointed you to that end. So, encourage one another. Build one another up. Remind one another of these things. Exhort one another in these things. Just as he says to the Thessalonians, you are also doing. Assurance. This is one of the things that characterizes those who are focused on the end. They are motivated. They're churning in the battle because they understand what's going on around them. They're not blind to the spiritual dangers around them. They're they're always dressing themselves with this breastplate of faith and this breastplate of love and this this helmet of hope. They're always, always doing that. And yet at the same time, their heart is resting in the blessed work of our Savior who has destined us for a day of salvation. This is the way we live in the light of His coming. It's a call for those of us who are children of light. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for this time, grateful for this text. In many ways, we are ashamed when we have allowed our eyes and ears to be too attentive to the sounds of the world telling us peace and safety, letting us imagine that their darkness is really light that their values are really anything but futile and empty. Lord, I pray that you would help us to dress ourselves then properly with faith and the love, with the hope, with fellowship, with truth, with with, uh, faithfulness to you, that we would dress ourselves with all of those things every day. 
that we'd go to bed tonight and wake up in the morning understanding the spiritual battle that we face and that we wouldn't shrink back and that we wouldn't be negligent in the spiritual disciplines necessary. Help us then, Lord, that we might wage the warfare with all the equipment that you give to us, that we might find the victory over sin even in this life, but ultimately that we can find our real source of joy and hope in the complete salvation that is to be brought to us on the day of His appearing. And it's in the precious name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in which we pray. Amen.